Season 8, coming right up. Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. So before we get into this week's episode, I have a couple announcements. We are in Los Angeles, and we are hosting events. So right now, about once a month, we are hosting a board game night. So these are just nights to come and play a game. We'll have some snacks, drinks, and some prizes. If you are interested in joining any of our events, be sure to like our Facebook page, Board Game with Education. We make announcements on there when those events will be hosted. We are also hosting a tutoring through play program. So we are tapping into that game-based learning that we talk about a lot on the show and hosting different programs to explore different topics. So our first program, we are exploring some science concepts. So we are using Genius Games that I'm sure a lot of you that listen to the show are familiar with. If not, be sure to check out their line of games and puzzles. They are a science-based game and puzzle company, so they use different science concepts and design games around them. So this program, we will explore a topic and look at it very broadly and then go into playing a game based around this topic. So if you're interested in these events or these programs, be sure to, again, like our Facebook page, or you can send me an email, podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com if you are in the Los Angeles area. If you're not in the Los Angeles area, don't worry. I have some announcements for you too. So we are still working on a review deck builder. This is a game-based resource that you can use to gamify your review lessons. So a lot of you might, if you're a teacher or even as a student, you might have played Review Jeopardy. And we talk about some of the pitfalls in that game that kind of don't work in a learning setting as well as some other game-based or gamification ways or methods we can use in the classroom. Because I'm sure you know, if you've ever done Review Jeopardy, you'll notice some students aren't particularly thrilled to be a part of the review game. Maybe there's one or two students that are super excited and answering all the questions, and then you have a group of students who maybe aren't as thrilled. So we're working on a review deck builder that really involves groups and all students in the review process of what you've been teaching. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Again, the best way to find out more information, like our Facebook page, Board Game with Education. You can also go to our website, boardgamewitheducation.com, and sign up for our email newsletter. That newsletter, we always make announcements through there. We also have a really, really cool once a month newsletter. Or you can go to our website, boardgamewitheducation.com and join our email community. You'll find the sign up page right on our homepage. It's the second thing you'll see on our homepage right after the podcast player. That is a really cool email community because we always send out announcements of new things that are coming out. We highlight different games and also what's really cool about our email community. Once a month, we release a newsletter. And in the newsletter, you'll find a lot of different articles and resources that came out that month that you can use in your classroom or you can learn a little bit more about game-based learning, gamification, or just games in education. And sometimes we throw in just some fun videos we found recently. Last month, there was a video about teachers playing D&D and how it's a really clever, I think, Dude Pants is the name of the creator. 
but you can search it on YouTube, Teachers Play Dungeons and Dragons. It's a pretty funny video. We also include a Kickstarter game of the month in that as well. All right, now let's get into the interview. Welcome to Board Gaming with Education. I have a really awesome guest on the show today. We have Chad Elkins. He is the founder of the board game company, 25th Century Games. So I'm super excited to have him on the show. We're going to talk about how he sprinkles elements of education into the games he designs for his company. So before we hopped on this call to record this episode, I did a little bit of my research, and this is a new segment for Board Game with Education for Season 8, and it's a fun fact about our guest. So I looked online a little bit, and I found that you play a Halloween character for the historic Oakland Cemetery. Is that, is that a true statement? <laughs> right. That is a very true statement. Yeah, I... Um, so... Uh, Historical Oakland Cemetery is uh, the oldest cemetery in Atlanta. Uh, it's located downtown. It's about 48 acres. Uh, about 70,000 people are buried there. And the the foundation there every year does a Halloween kind of nighttime event where they open the, the gates to the cemetery to the public at night, which is the only time it happens every year because there's no lights uh, in the cemetery. And so they light everything up and then, take people on a guided tour to like six or seven different stops and the stops change every year. And so they, the guests and everything is done in period costume, all the, all the, the tour guides and all the actors that basically reenact uh, characters and kind of do a six, seven minute monologue uh, about a particular person in Atlanta history. And then, uh, so I've been doing that for actually, I guess probably about 10 years now. So I guess it's pretty informational too, since uh, we're learning about different historical figures. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think they, they they constantly say from a, a tagline perspective, it's it's all about, it's all about enlightening, you know, not frightening. So it's not a, a scary type okay. of a thing, but it's uh, it's a nice experience, and folks can walk around the cemetery at night and you know with a, a beverage and kind of casually stroll along in a guided tour environment with like these really nice lights kind of line the pathways and. Uh, just hear some interesting stories, and it's even though like I've been volunteering there, and I and I give regular tours, you know, as well. And uh, every year, there's always a, a few of the characters that I've just never even heard of. They they try to find some really interesting stories, and, and the tour changes every year. So most people you know, are members and, and and buy tickets and come to it every single year because the tour completely changes each year. Do you ever sprinkle in any like game mechanics or anything game related on those tours? <laughs> uh, I, I wish like I, I, if, if there was a big enough market for it, I would love to do um, uh, an Atlanta history game, but it would be um, very, <laughs> for the, the amount of effort it would take to do it. And it's just, uh, it would be very time consuming with, with not a whole lot of addressable market. Although we, I, I, the first project I did for 25th century was a, um, uh, it was a puzzle and it was an, uh, an old map of Atlanta from 1892. Uh, and so it's just, just really beautiful, old, uh, hand-drawn, you know, perspective based map from this cartographer who went around to cities all over the U S after the civil war and basically just went up in a hot air balloon and painted 
you know, everything that he saw. So every single house on the map was a house that existed. Uh, it went back and then labeled all the street names and, and added a little legend about some notable buildings. But it basically was the city of Atlanta map you know, for, for a few decades. And so that uh, was available on the Library of Congress. And uh, so I pulled down this huge high-res file version of it and, and turned it into a puzzle. And, and we still sell that puzzle today on our website. And it's also, I, I donate it to, uh, it costs to uh, history centers and museums around the state so they can use it to fundraise you know, for their organizations. Yeah, that's super awesome. I'm looking at it on the site at 25thcenturygames.com. And I think when I first saw it, it kind of reminded me, I don't know if it's the same time era, but like a Jack the Ripper style drawing of London. Yeah, that um, that cartographer, he, I mean, there's a lot of old late 19th century uh, and early 20th century maps that were drawn. He did a lot of them. So you can go online and look up Augustus Koch. It's like K-O-C-H. Uh, and he's, um, I, I don't, he probably had 30 or 40 of them, uh, at least at that many that I, could, that I could find, you know, good copies of. So we're here to talk about your company, 25th Century Games, and ways you use different elements of education. You mentioned you do that through Kickstarter updates and some several other ways, but before we do that, one thing we like to ask our guests is, tell us about a time you learned something through a game. One that pops up in my head is probably the, the longest ago. I think probably a lot of people, my generation, I guess they still do it, but uh, like Hooked on Phonics, I feel like was a, was a very popular style of learning, like, I guess, like English and, and grammar and stuff way back in the day and how to spell uh, with, with a whole series of just this box of games. I do remember that. Yeah, I think some of them, you know, gamifying, even like modern day, like I've been in product management for a lot of my career, you know, and I think about a lot of the different, some of it's gamification, but a lot of it's just like visual, you know, ways of communicating to to try to get ideas across and get ideas on the board. There's lots of different ways you can uh, leverage different design sprint, you know, type techniques for cultivating ideas and refining them and and things like that. And I feel like I, that's something that happens a ton, uh, even for me today, uh, or those type of like Google design sprints and like iterative sprint des- like design sprints are um, very popular. Right. That's something that's very new to me is the process of design. Uh, I never studied design in school, but through <laughs> through the podcast, through building a website, through how the community interacts with different parts of our podcast and our website and doing our world's XP, it's just been so awesome to kind of see how things we learn through the design process just overlap into so many other areas of our life. Yeah, there's lots of, like I was in some classes um, very recently through the Luma uh, Institute, and it's amazing, like some of the, even the the examples, some of the instructors would talk about, you know, in in the design process, like, oh yeah, I use that with my significant other as far as planning out like projects that we want to do around our house. So we'll do a needs, wants, you know, type of activity to try to help, you know, narrow that stuff down. And then they'll, they'll, they'll pivot that to a different exercise to, to refine it based on uh, other criteria. So there's lots of ways where you can digest complex problems into very simple steps uh, that make you think a little bit differently and to quickly move those through different process, different steps that, uh, that kind of keep changing uh, and it just really makes you evolve how you process and, and lay something out. And game design works very much like that. You know, game ideation, you know, and, and, and development 
uh, certainly as well. Right. I think you are going to make me spend some money tonight because uh, you made you reminded me of the book. Uh, I listened to a lot of game design podcasts about uh, the design of everyday things. I've been meaning to pick up that book for so long because it's pretty highly recommended by a lot of, I guess, designers or even on the podcasts I listen to. It comes up pretty often. So I think uh, based on our conversation, I'm going to go purchase a book now. There you go. <laughs> I'm sure that author will be uh, will be happy about it. Right. So you are the founder of 25th Century Games, and you pretty much, that's how board games relate to your career. Is How did you get started into board games? I think like a lot of people, I grew up as a kid, you know, playing all the very terrible, you know, 1980s, you know, IP, terrible roll and move games that like one comes out for every single TV show and movie back in that era. But from a modern day perspective, really, I, I didn't go through like the magic route. You know, a lot of a lot of game publishers that are uh, and game designers kind of that's where they kind of cut their teeth was in the, the magic world. Uh, I actually came through on the you know more casual hobby gateway side. You know, started playing things like Catan, uh, and then what really got me very very active was about I think it's eleven years ago, 10, 11 years ago now. Uh, was when a game called Last Night on Earth came out, which was um, like a zombie, very scenario-driven kind of zombie miniatures uh, game. And just I was just a huge like fan of zombies at that era, you know, and, and like horror movies. And so that thing came out, and I was like, oh, so me and my friends got it. Uh, we started playing it every week, and so that we played that game till just just we just couldn't play it anymore, you know, for a couple months. And then other guys I was playing with started like, Hey, I'm gonna bring over this game. Like I just got this. And so they bring over something else. And we, so we just started buying new games and exploring more things in the hobby and that weekly game group, uh, even though some of the people have changed over the years, but it's still going uh, every week, you know, for you know, 11 years now, I think last time on earth had its 10th anniversary edition come out, I think last year. And I bought it brand new like when it first came out when I heard about it. So at, um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's how I started there, and then evolved uh, into doing it as a as a business. Uh, I guess probably about three years ago now. Right, I, I've seen the last night on Earth. I think at Barnes and Noble recently. I had to look it up to look at the picture, um, but it's definitely one of those. It looks like it's a movie or a board game straight from the eighties, like horror, like just the cover. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that um, so Flying Frog Productions was the company that 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 made it, and with the exception of kind of where they've shifted their company to on this like Shadows uh, series, all their original games, which was Last Night on Earth, Touch of Evil, uh, and there's one more about aliens, but all their games use photography for their all their components, all the cards. They have like people dressed up, you know, in photography shots instead of using illustration work, uh, and from like the zombies to the the characters to the it everything is is shot and it's just it was a really kind of cool concept because you just didn't really see that in board games uh you still really don't today like i couldn't imagine trying to especially a lot of different as many things as they have i couldn't imagine as a publisher trying to coordinate like photo shoots and everything for all of that all those different items that's one of those things where like it it was really cool back then but i didn't really think much about probably what went into it but now on the publishing side of things, looking back at, at all those games that they made back then, man, like that had to be just a just a monumental effort <laughs> from a coordination to get done. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I guess that's why we have uh, Adobe Stock or those stock photos now. 
because they just you know you can pull from that library. I can think of one game that does it, uh, and it's, it receives a lot of flack for it. Is Terraforming Mars? I think they have some photography or like maybe like splicing of different photographs. I'm not sure. I'm just picturing a couple cards in it. They to me they look like they might have been staged in a photo taken. Yeah, and then sometimes they'll take pictures and and paint over them to make them you know look like art instead of a photo but it's it's very obvious it was at a photo start to it i think scythe had some issues some people were trying to call that out you know for it but but yeah it, it's um you don't see it a lot with real photography in games but like it's one of those things where i if it's done right i think it's, it's very cool to see it that way but I feel like it's a lot of games based on movies and, and things where they've got still images where they can bring those in. I feel like that's where you see it most often uh, as opposed to like a literally building an IP from scratch where there is no stock footage you know, from a film that you can just grab stills and use to go out and get people in costume and, and set up photo shoots and stuff. Like that's just, that's just really cool. Maybe one day I'll do it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work though. So with your company, 25th Century Games, you have one game coming out called Jurassic Parts on Kickstarter, and then you have another one that's already available on your site, Space Explorers. So both those games kind of have a content or a theme on them that are educational in nature, I suppose. What ways do you interlace different elements of education with your products? The education component piece is is not... Like directly connected, right? There are there are other game publishers out there who do a fantastic job of of really basing things very very much rooted in science. Uh, like Genius Games comes to mind, for example. Uh, a lot of their theirs are very science focused. You know, they've got a game like about the periodic table and about cytosis, uh, but it's that's not what you would think of as a like an a, a old learning kind of game. It's very much a modern gamers game, but just rooted in real science. Uh, and then Academy Games on the history front, like 25th Century Games is probably never going to go to that direction with it. Although I think you can take, in many ways, almost any game and and hopefully in that game inspire someone to want to go explore and learn more. So Space Explorers is an example of that. Uh, that game uses actual you know, names and images, you know, artist images of spacecrafts from the, the late 50s through the early 70s. Uh, there's 20 of them in the game, 10 Soviet and 10 US. You know, while there, and there are little passages about them uh, that I wrote that we put into the, the solo rulebook, just because we have more space there. Even though it's not like a historical like game that you can use as a learning tool, but it is something that hopefully people will, will play and, and get excited and want to go learn more like if they see a, a tile for, well, I have no idea what the you know, this particular spacecraft was. Let me go look that up and, and just read more about it. I think that's that to me. I think is where games can really, really bring home uh, the education piece without, without making it feel like you're you're playing a game to be educated. I guess is, is a good way to say it. I think you're spot on with with space explorers and that something that a lot of games with that kind of type of theme placed on them is they have tangential learning where what you said, it'll spark an interest in someone playing the game. They might go Google something about the game they're playing. I really think it's cool that you included some, you said some like footnotes about some of the uh, history 
or the historical figures. Maybe how did you decide like which figures to include in the game or I guess which figures are important to include in that game and why is that part of the game? Why is that the historical context for Space Explorers? Well, one, it was easy to narrow down because you're talking about a defined period. I mean, it was it was basically supposed to be a, a 1960s era space race game. Uh, but the space race started in the late 50s uh, with, with, with Sputnik and then... Then the U.S. launched a, a probe shortly after that. So you have, and then the last one is like very, very, very early seventies. So it was we kind of wanted to put a mix in there, and we wanted to evenly split between. You know, so it was even between Soviet and Americans. Doesn't make a difference which ones you launch in the game, but we wanted representation from both sides since those were the two dominant uh, space agencies in that period. And so in there, we wanted to make sure we had kind of the. Ones people would recognize. So obviously Sputnik 1, uh, Apollo 11 is in there. Uh, you know, So things that people would know and other particular items that you may not have never heard of, uh, but were also in their own way very, very instrumental uh, into the what went into the, the spacecraft era, you know, from different probes or different satellites, uh, and as well as, as crafts that carried people uh, and even animals. You know, so we had... Um, you know, Sputnik, I guess it was two uh, that carried Laika, uh, the, the dog from the, the Soviet Union. Do you think that adds to an immersive gaming experience, including these historical references and uh, authentic or real historical figures? I think it does. I think, especially if you're even just mildly curious about history, and especially interesting history. Like, to me, I was always a space nerd, uh, you know, as a, as a kid. And so uh, space in general has always interest me, but I think even no matter who you are, uh, the history of spacecraft travel, I mean, that's, it's, it's so exciting and, and fascinating uh, that it does captivate the imagination and rooting and rooting that in, in realism. Uh, I think drives that home as well. Like if you think about some games, I don't know if you've ever played, I, I recently, my wife and I played a game called uh, world's fair 1893, uh, which is by renegade and, and Foxtrot studios. Uh, that game it's about a, a World's Fair, and literally about the World's Fair in 1893, which, which was a humongous fair in history, and lots of different really innovative items were revealed there. Like, you could have had that game be about a generic World's Fair and have items in that game that were just generic, but they actually went, went and put in very specific things from that era and little sentences about what it was, you know, and why it was so fascinating to, to captivate the imaginations of, of people that were visiting. And while my wife and I were playing it, she was like, oh, right. She's like, I, I read a book recently uh, about the building of the World's Fair 1893. And it was, it was like a mass murderer that was killing people uh, in the construction areas of, of that event. And uh, she was able to like to tell me stories about, about a book she had read while we're sitting there playing this game and then simultaneously reading some of the text on the cards to get more flavor about, uh, about the world's fair was she was like, Oh, that person was in that book. You know, I totally remember it with them, <laughs> things like that. Like that's like, that's just cool. Like when you can take and, and weave these things that we may learn from a variety of other places from TV to books and, and movies, uh, you know, and you weave them in together into a game experience and a game experience itself is already, very social in nature, right? Because you're meeting with someone over a physical space and conversing. And I think if you, if a game can get people to converse, you know, a, a, about a topic uh, that interests you, then 
that's beyond just you know idle chit chat, then that's a that's a that's a fun experience. You mentioned that, and it made me realize something that I think something really cool that games can do as well as other, I guess, medias or art forms is that something Chernobyl, I don't know if you've seen the HBO series Chernobyl, that's rooted in history, the actual history of what happened. But then there's also a podcast connected to the filming of the show. So you you kind of dive a little bit deeper into the decisions they made in the history of that event and decisions they made to represent that history. I think that's something that games can do as well. Is like you mentioned, the World's Fair, you have another way of learning about the history and learning about the things that happen in like space explorers as well. So you can kind of have a different way of learning it as well as like maybe you read about the history, but then you go play the game and it helps you kind of remember the figures or remember the experiences or historical things that happen. Yeah, I think it can go either way. I think you could you could have a course talking about a particular aspect of, of history and go play a game to then it's kind of much like a lot of the design process and design thinking where you can then go and have an experience that utilizes different triggers in your brain to kind of almost like roots it, you know, it makes you think about it differently. And you can also have the inverse where you, you play in it, you, you go see an experience, you know, if it's a game or art or a, a dramatized movie, then it makes you want to go explore something deeper into the, the, the facts that went into that. Yeah, I think that's a, like there's a, so many podcasts out there like on the, the murder mystery stuff, right? Like that's, that's so big right now about all these cold case type solving things. My wife has really got into those. And so, but then like we'll watch sometimes she'll like be watching a documentary, like a Netflix documentary. It's like, oh, I'll listen to a podcast about this documentary. You know, kind of, but, the, but the podcast lasted for 20 hours, right? And we're only watching like a one hour thing on the thing on the uh, the TV. But yeah, the, the, the ways you can do mixed media like across so many different ways to, to bring home information is, is really an interesting time that we live in. Yeah, it's super awesome. And I love that there are so many different games coming out that you can really have a game for a very specific historical time period. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like Academy Games has one that's, that's really very well renowned about it's a game about the Underground Railroad, you know, and during the Civil War, which you would think is a topic you know, that you just would, would not find a board game about, right? There's lots of different board games about war and about, uh, you know, building trains through a certain area of, of time and, and area of the world, but you don't really think about taking something as sensitive as slavery uh, in the Civil War and making a game out of it. But but they, they did that and they actually did it really, really well. And so it's it can be done, uh, I think, Especially, it, you've got to really take a lot of care in how you bring about some topics, especially if, if they're very sensitive. And even cultures, like there's, you, know, you see a lot of games that, that, that come out and they get a lot of flack for uh, cultural ins- insensitivity. You know, and I think it's important when, as, when you're making something that does involve uh, a culture or a, a people that, that you're not intimately familiar with to go spend the time to talk to cultural consultants and, and bring people into the design experience that know about it and can really relay that information and portray it correctly because it, it can get you into trouble. I haven't had a chance to play the Underground Railroad game, but I have seen it posted in different Facebook groups. And from 
what I've read about comments generally, it was done very well. And I think you're, you have a really valid point about cultures. And I think that's a whole conversation about why it's important for diversity when you develop a game that is definitely using parts of different cultures. So your game Jurassic Parks is also on Kickstarter now based on uh, the release of this episode. Where did the idea for this game come from or what's, what is Jurassic Parks? Yeah, so Jurassic Parts is a, it's not about dinosaurs going, going wild and eating people in, uh, in amusement parts. parks. It is a uh, dinosaur fossil game where you are, uh, it's, a, it's an area enclosure set collection game, which if you're, that's a lot of jargon speak for different design mechanics. But the game itself, you are, uh, you are a paleontologist and you, you and all the rest of your players, it's competitive. Uh, so you are all around this this dig excavation site uh, and you can see some fossils that are there. There are some fossil tiles. You can't see what's underneath them. Uh, and you're basically trying to enclose off an area and then contribute to the cracking off of chunks of it. And you reveal the tiles that are there and then you divvy those up based on who contributed uh, the most and then try to assemble those into complete sets of dinosaurs to score points. So that's the set collection aspect. I don't know what, it, what, what Kevin Lansing's um, origination was in coming up with the design. So Kevin Lansing, I uh, may recognize his name from the Flashpoint Fire Rescue series. So it's a very, really one of the best co-op gateway games that really out there uh, is your cooperative firefighters, you know, trying to put fires out uh, in different buildings. Really just a, an absolutely fantastic game. In my opinion, right up there, kind of neck and neck with like, so like Pandemic, you know, from a, an era forbidden probably a little more complex like a forbidden uh, island but i guess that and pandemic probably two of the best two like, entry point cooperative games uh so he designed it uh and, and, and showed it to me and uh, it was really kind of exactly the kind of complexity and the size that i was uh, looking for uh to, to want to publish and uh, i think originally it was called fossil hunters and we've um modified that and then modified um a few of the aspects of it since he his original design just to kind of keep flushing it out. But uh, where it's at now, I think it's a, it's a fantastic, uh, really, really kind of most filler weight, casual gateway game. Uh, but he designed it. And then Andrew Bosley did the artwork. Uh, Andrew Bosley, very well known. i uh, done a lot of, a lot of games recently, Everdell being one that a lot of people know him for. Uh, he also did the artwork for a, a game recently called Tapestry, as well as the river. Uh, and there's probably at least 10 others I could probably name off. But he did a a beautiful job with the artwork. Uh, And then Matt Paquette helped with the graphic design to kind of bring forward the fossil field guide, you know, kind of book aspects and some of the other ways to kind of round out the illustrations to to represent it. But uh, Bosley's illustrations look fantastic. And uh, we really took a lot of care, even though we only have six characters, seven characters in the game. You know, we did a really fantastic job, I think, of, of bringing forth uh, different you know, cultural ethnicities and, and body types uh, in, in those characters. Super awesome. I think all those games you mentioned about the artists and the designers is something that I definitely, those are all games I want to pick up, but I haven't had a chance to play yet. With Jurassic Parts, it will, or it is on Kickstarter now, so we're releasing this episode with it currently available on Kickstarter. What were some of the educational components? I know you say it's not directly an educational game, but it has the paleontology theme with it. Are there any like tangential learning 
opportunities with this game as well, like similar to Space Explorers? Yeah, very much so. Uh, it is very direct. I mean, we are not making up dinosaurs. I mean, it is uh, the dinosaur bones you know, and the types that you're able to assemble are actual dinosaurs. Uh, and so what I'm hoping there is that, that people will you know, play the game and, and want to talk about the different dinosaurs that are in it or go read more about it or look up on Google to see what they look like, you know, what, the, what we believe they look like you know, once they're not in bone form uh, and, and look up some of the different things about them. If we have room in the rule book, we'll try to squeeze some, some kind of factoids in. Uh, but do plan during the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, something I've done uh, really for a lot of different campaigns, I, I've done it for every campaign with the exception of, exception of Kingswood because it was, it was very fantasy uh, type setting. But one of the things I like to do is whenever I send out a Kickstarter update to backers and the, the bottom of that, I'll try to include a, a little section, like some really interesting facts. So for Space Explorers, every single update I, I sent out uh, for the first 20, every update had each spacecraft that was in the game. I included some photos of the, the spacecraft, either some photos of it in orbit or on the launch pad and videos, some old historical documentary footage that I, I, I dug up uh, just to kind of let people know and give them like a nice little snapshot of whenever I do send out an update, hopefully they're like, oh, I'm going to go read the update just so I can see, you know, all the, the facts about our spacecraft uh, is included there. And I did the same, I'm doing something similar now with a, a game that honestly has almost no educational value to it. Uh, the game is called Winner, Winner, Chicken Dinner. Uh, it's a very light family weight game, uh, you know, for like ages like eight and up. Uh, but it's about foxes stealing chickens from a, a chicken coop and cooking them into dinner. So you wouldn't think anything's interesting to learn about that. But uh, in all of those updates, actually, I'm putting, I made a little section called you know, Know Your Chickens. So it's kind of written in a context of you're a fox, kind of telling other foxes about, well, this is the type of chicken like going to look out for and uh, here's kind of some history about the, the breed and, and some of their basic stats kind of a thing. And here's what they look like. <laughs> so not, uh, I'm, I'm sure no one's really, hopefully people were excited to kind of learn some factoids about chickens because uh, there are a lot of weird chicken breeds out there with, <laughs> as you can probably imagine, they all, all look just like little white, you know, like birds, like you see, like in, in, that come to mind, or little brown birds. But there are some that have really crazy hairdos, and there are some are really tall. Some have like really, really short legs. Some have extra toes. It's really kind of a weird. <laughs> Chickens can be weird. I think it's all maybe not all, but pretty regional too, right? There's probably some different types of chickens over in other part of the world, like Asia or South America. For sure, yeah, like northern Asia, like northern China and stuff, and and like eastern Europe, a lot of the chickens over there for like cold weather climates have to be, they have a lot more fur. They look like very like fuller, you know, kind of plumper than the other ones around the world. But so okay. for Jurassic Parks, I'll I'll likely carry through something very similar in each update. Probably include a, a, a dinosaur and, and some kind of just some quick little facts about uh, about that. So hopefully if you're listening to this and you go read the updates on the Jurassic Parks Kickstarter page, I am doing it and I didn't give up on it, <laughs> but uh, I'm, that, that is my plan. So if you're listening at the very least back to project for those awesome, awesome updates on Jurassic Parks. Yeah, I had a lot of people that were like, were, would message me and stuff talking about 
like those Space Explorers updates. They're like, they're like, I've seen like a lot of good updates from campaigns and stuff, but I've never had uh, updates where I wanted to go read it because I was really excited to, to read about the history behind that particular like, project. And so uh, that was that's really good. It took a lot of time for each of those updates. It takes a lot more time to write those updates because you got to go and research stuff. And um, so I was very trying to go find lots of different video recordings and audio recordings and, and lots of different fun images that really kind of digging through archives at you know, NASA and uh, the Soviet Union uh, Space Agency. Right. I mean, that's some awesome content you can use for promoting the game down the road too, right? You can maybe do some blog updates about the different breeds of chickens, which you oh, can yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's, um, it's just random like facts. It's kind of fun to, to read about it. I mean, it's... Uh, if it's just for my own enjoyment, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, the, the dinosaur thing is is certainly very prime for for that similar type of update, and like I'll try to keep carrying that experience forward. Awesome. So before we move into the final segment, do you have any last words of advice for maybe someone who's designing a game with a educational type of theme where there's opportunity to learn something outside the game? or maybe a publisher that's giving updates like this? Do you have any last words of advice? Uh, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it needs to still be fun, right? I, mean, I think the, the the games that, that incorporate history and, and, and actual, you know, or science and, and modern day science and stuff, the ones that do it really well still are rooted in fun, you know, and, and don't try to bog themselves down with being a chore to, to, to get through. Like I shouldn't have to, if I'm playing the game, there shouldn't be a gigantic paragraph of text. You know, just a couple little, one little quick factoid, you know, might be enough uh, to kind of get the, the message across. And I think on the, on the, uh, if you're trying to do some stuff around like updates and including extra historical content, you know, try to at least be, write them in such a way that's still conversational. It doesn't read like a textbook. Like, like the chicken updates are written in such a way where you kind of talking like a fox about it. Like, hey, these are plump, you know, chickens. You should look for those and, and throw them in your sack and take home because they're, they're delicious. You know, things like that. Like, I think you've got to have something that, that brings, connects, like, because the, the game itself, the chicken dinner one, for example, is very light. So the the, his, the, the kind of chicken factoids need to be light as well. Uh, I don't need to go writing a, writing a, um, you know, some kind of long dissertation on, you know, certain types of makeup componentry or whatever. Because you know, it's just not going to be interesting for anybody. But, but uh, just keeping everything in sync between the, the theme and, and the lightness or the heaviness, uh, as well as um, just making sure it wants factual, <laughs> right? Right. I think I want to go back to the point you made too about making sure the game's rooted and fun is as a teacher for myself and designing any lesson that I use game-based learning, that's into anyone that also is doing that to make sure games are rooted in fun. There's a lot of English language games that are roll and move games. That's kind of, if you search now, I think it's a little bit better. But when I first started teaching English language, if I searched like ESL English second language games, one of the first ones that would come up would be a roll and move. You roll, you answer a question, and you move on. You roll, you answer a question, you move on. And that's, that's no fun for anyone, right? And I think it's really important to make sure are using an engaging game in your classes or designing, right? If it's an educational game, designing something that that is fun without maybe that educational theme too. Well, yeah, that and the, it, it needs to not just be something that could have been read w- without a game. 
right? Like if like a, like what you're talking about, oh, roll and move here and answer a question. Well, I could just take a piece of paper and just ask you questions, right? Like I don't I don't need I don't need the game part to do that. But uh, if you've got a game where I'm bu- deck building different types of atoms that are being comboed together to create like a special ability, well, those may be the actual atoms that go into a particular metal, right? Like it's where it's like I, I'm learning about the different elements of the periodic table or, or whatever it is, and so. Things like that, I think, are where you, you almost kind of learn without realizing you're learning is probably the most effective. That's that's what we want to do as teachers. <laughs> Definitely getting our students to learn without realizing it is is, is like a win-win. Because then they could just go, all of a sudden they spout out something back to you. You're like, see, look at that. You learned something today. All right, so let's move into our final segment question, and this is new for the podcast. It is something I've done a couple times because I've recorded some episodes before ours, but yours is the first one of the season. So I'm excited to know what the listeners, what you think about this final segment question and give us some feedback. But the final segment, or not the question, in the past it was a question. So final segment is a thumbs up, thumbs down, rapid fire round. So I'm going to give you a couple statements and you either give me a thumbs up or thumbs down and a brief brief reason why you give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. All right. Speed round. (laughs) So the first one, single player campaign video games. Uh, Thumbs up. That's what I grew up on. Forget this whole multiplayer world stuff because I have a real job and I'll, I can't spend 18 hours a day perfecting Call of Duty to, you know, like a lot of those like the youngsters can. So I want to go in there and just play it and, and do my own thing. I'm the opposite, but I feel you on the Call of Duty because I love to play multiplayer, but I just like I, I get on and I just get destroyed. Yeah, well, yeah, because I, I, I've got enough time to make maybe put an hour in a week, you know, or two hours. And so like, I am not going to memorize every inch of that map like someone, you know, sitting there after school playing for 15 hours a day. <laughs> so the next one, I'm going to ask you a question before I go into the, the thumbs up, thumbs down statement. Have you been to any board game conventions? Yes. Okay. So this one is staying up late playing board games at a con. Uh, thumbs up. I um, most time at a con. I am working at uh, my booth all day, so the only time I get a chance to actually play is at night. So staying up late is just part of it. Awesome. So the next one, legacy games. Hmm. Um. So for me, thumbs down. I. I like to play a lot of different games, maybe one or two times. So I, I go for breadth, not depth. Uh, and so a legacy style campaign where I got to play the same game 10, 15 times uh, is probably just never going to happen. And Magic the Gathering. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say thumbs down. I am not a Magic player. I have never had a desire to be a Magic player. So I guess that's thumbs down. But uh, I can definitely appreciate what Magic the Gathering has done to bring people into the hobby, to bring designers into the hobby, and to bring publishers into the hobby. And the last one, feel free to give any uh, recommendations to board game podcasts. Board game podcasts. All right. So some of the ones that, so I think from a game design standpoint, I really like uh, Board Game Design Lab, uh, as well as, uh, I'm trying to blank out what Gil Hobo's podcast is called. 
drawing a blank. A ludology, that one? Ludology, yep, there you go. Yeah. Uh, from a just listening to, you know, just some fun people talk about um, different games going on a lot of different ways. Uh, one Board Family, uh, really, really awesome folks. Uh, Tantrum House, another really good one. Board Game Closet, The Dice Odyssey, Board Game Spotlight. Very sporadic, but uh, when they do do stuff, uh, it's fun. Actually, we're, Dice, excuse me, Dice Odyssey is not a podcast. It's a bit YouTube series. And then some of the ones that are a little bit different uh, than what you might have heard. So I do also like Board Game Barrage. Uh, those guys are a lot of fun. Uh, and also This Game is Broken, which is a game show type format. Uh, it's really fun. Sporadically Bored, if you want a podcast that's very loosely about board games, but just uh, very interesting conversations. And then the one I was thinking about was, it's basically, it's a, it's a, it's a board game podcast and it's, something, I think it's immerse, immersive. I'm trying, it, it comes up and um, my favorite over there, Immersed is one. It almost feels like a PBS documentary. And it's a really interesting style because they'll incorporate sound and have it be conversational. Like one of the episodes was about viticulture and they had a, we're having a conversation with a winemaker uh, in a particular area of the country and talking about the challenges and how, and the struggles of, of, of making wine as a producer. But then they were, they were layering in comments about playing the game viticulture and relating it to that. So I thought that it's a very, very clever and really, really well done podcast. I mean, that goes back to what we talked about, having different ways to interact with a, a different topic, having the podcast. And then actually the podcast goes into interviewing wine make, a winemaker. And that's what Viticulture is about, is making wine. That's really awesome. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I, I listen to a ton of work. I could probably rattle off like a whole bunch here. But the uh, I think things like that where you can, like I feel like, I, I, I literally feel like I'm listening to NPR, but I'm really listening to a board game podcast and it's like this game is broken you know it's fun because it's a it's a game show format you know and you're kind of hearing about different board games that way and then like something like five games for doomsday uh is a really fun format because basically the the host and it sets it up for a, a guest each week or you know each release it's basically like, hey the end of the world's happening you've got to come into a, a bunker like what are the five games that you bring you know and then let's talk about why and then they kind of set up different scenarios about it and I think the, the really fun podcasts out there are things like that where you just you incorporate it a different way. Uh, and then some like some are just very focused in certain styles. Like so one, bo- when one board family, for example, uh, they're all about family weight games. So they're very, th- like, they kind of target that market like area. But then they also have another podcast that they do called Will It Game? And it's they basically, the two of them, Ryan and Rick, have a guest on and they pick a topic and they very quickly on the fly pitch to usually terrible board game uh, ideas and the guest has to pick which one that they you know they like the best and why uh, and so that's a there's lots of what's what's so cool about this hobby is there's lots of different ways to connect to it and uh, so there's a lot of fun podcasts like that out there well i mean you named a lot of ones i've heard of i think maybe you've named a few that i haven't too so i'm excited to kind of check some of these out all right, Chad, thank you again for coming on the show. I learned a lot, and this conversation was really awesome to kind of talk about our different topics about designing games and learning a bit about 25th century games. If someone wanted to contact you, where could they find you, and 
are you working on anything else besides Jurassic Parts, or is that kind of the main project for now? Yeah, so 25thCenturyGames.com uh, and all the social uh, channels. You can certainly check us out there. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You'll see, uh, if you follow like our Instagram account, I post a lot more things there that you get a lot more kind of behind the scenes on things that are kind of still in prototype form and up and coming things that just haven't really been formally released yet. But yeah, so this year is a, it's a really big push year for, for me in 25th century. So we've got, uh, you can still late pledge for winner, winner, chicken dinner. Uh, it's going to be released to the, uh, to retail in March, but you can still have, you know, late pledge for a uh, Kickstarter version of that. Uh, you can just look it up on Kickstarter and get the link. Kingswood will come out uh, in retail in April and then this summer is going to be a really big, big summer push on new releases. So we've got uh, Jurassic Parts will come out at retail this summer, as well as I'm reprinting a Reiner Knizia game called Tutankhamen. That's, that's an old 1990s uh, spiel, you know, kind of recommended nominated game. Bringing that back with all new art and some different mechanics. Uh, so that will be a straight to retail release that will not go through Kickstarter. I've also got a game coming through um, Kickstarter in April-ish, it'll probably come out in the fall, called um, Color Field, which is an abstract, uh, very a color palette puzzle game, uh, as well as another game called Blazon that will be in Kickstarter in the fall, uh, and a game shortly after that called Alpha Quadrant. So lots of stuff. This is going to be a, a very, very busy year. And uh, uh, two party games this summer coming out, uh, one called Cloud Control uh, and one called Curmudgeon. So busy, busy. Wow, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a lot. you have a lot of projects <laughs> coming up. That's, I think maybe once a month almost you're there. Yeah, about every two months I've got something probably starting to hit retail starting in about April and well really gets kind of March. <laughs> and what would you say is the best way maybe someone can keep track of the projects coming out? Uh, definitely I would say so, you know, visit the website, subscribe to our email list. I email about once every month, month and a half. It's not very frequent. Like Instagram, Facebook certainly are, are really great ways to follow along. Uh, and also Board Game Geek. So if you use uh, that website, you can go and and follow, subscribe, you know, subscribe to our different projects that you can see. You know, we're looking at 25th Century, and that way you get all the updates whenever we you know, start posting things on the on those pages. Awesome, Chad. Thank you very much again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Dustin. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate the invite. And finally, as always, thank you for checking out the podcast. If you have a moment, please, please, please leave a review for us. This helps others find the show. You can leave a review on any podcasting platform. Let us know what you think. And as always, you can reach us at podcast at boardgamewitheducation.com. All right, until next time. Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening and until next time.